Hello and welcome to Not If I Reboot You First, the podcast that takes our favorite properties and reboots them before Hollywood has the chance to. It's a little bit like brainstorming fanfiction. I'm Lindsay and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Tanner, they, them. This week, I can't remember what the hint was last time, but I know that we're taking, once again, we're taking a cult classic and saying, hey, what if this lasted more than one season? Yeah, um, my hint last time I gave a hint was for Coljack the Night Stalker, which I don't know how many people know about this series, but like, Coljack walked so that X-Files could run, basically. Like, Chris Carter himself said that, like, X-Files would not exist without Coljack the Night Stalker. Which is interesting because from what I saw, it's very dissimilar from X-Files. Yeah. Like, I think the premise of, like, people investigating supernatural stuff with, like, a bit of, like, crime and science fiction kind of all put together. Hmm. Just that sort of, like, genre kitchen sink situation probably happened. Okay. Yeah. And there was an attempt to resurrect Cold Jack the Night Stalker back in the back in 2005, and it didn't even finish its season either. It was bad. Anyway, I should tell you what Cold Jack the Night Stalker is all about. Gabrielle Union was in the remake? Yeah. That's rad. Also, why does... <laughs> Sorry, the, the two choice I made for the 2005 reboot, it's just the cover of the DVD. Yeah. And it says season 1.5, which doesn't make sense. Because it sounds like it didn't even, like you said, didn't even get the full season. Yeah, uh, it got six episodes. So this is the 2005 attempted reboot. And then, like, there was another four episodes that were put onto iTunes. Oh, good old iTunes. <laughs> yeah. Um, the original Kolchak the Night Stalker, so... The TV show ran from 74 to 75, and it was, like, the sequel, if you will, to two made-for-TV movies called The Night Stalker and The Night Strangler, which came out in 72 and 73, respectively. Okay. They starred Darren McGavin as Carl Kolchak, who's an investigative reporter who looks into mysterious crimes with unlikely causes, particularly involving the supernatural and science fiction and other fantastical creatures. The movie got its start. The first movie got its start through an unpublished manuscript for a novel called The Kolchak Papers, which was written by Jeff Rice. So it's set in Las Vegas. You got Carl Kolchak, who's trying to track down a serial killer who turns out to be a vampire by the name of Janos Skorzeny. So it's a pretty simple... Then again, like, this came out in 1972, so, like, it's basically the predecessor to a lot of, like, Harry Dresden is kind of a more proper successor. Yeah, I guess that, again, I have not read the Dresden Files, but from what I know of that, that makes a lot of sense, uh, like, tone-wise. Yeah. So, the Night Stalker movie was pretty popular, and <laughs> I watched it on YouTube, and there was a coroner in it who was played by fucking Larry Linville, aka Frank Burns of MASH, which was huh. a trip. If you know... Like, okay, this... <laughs> Larry Linville is in this movie for, like, a couple minutes total, and he's playing this very sober coroner and medical examiner. Mm -hmm. If you know anything about Frank Burns, that is not this coroner. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, The Night Stalker uh, was really popular. It garnered the highest ratings of any television movie at the time. Oh, cool. And then the next year, they had The Night Strangler, which was set in Seattle, and this is about another serial killer who is stalking people who are, who is draining their blood for an elixir of life. Like it, it did pretty well too. So they're like, "Hey, let's turn this into a TV series." And at first, it was doing okay, and they actually aired twenty of twenty three episodes. But the problem is that like the the ratings started to tank. And a lot of the, uh, well, it was mostly Darren McGavin was really unsatisfied with how they were handling the show because it was getting into very Monster of the Week situation. And that might have contributed to the ratings going down. So, yeah, it was cancer, can cancelled after only 20 episodes. 
Oh, no, the Order 26, and there were scripts for 23 episodes. Okay. So, yeah, uh, Darren McGavin was able to get out of his contract early, and then, yeah, there was an attempted... (laughs) There was an attempt at a remake in 2005 that went really bad with, I think it was Warren Ellis, who said, basically, like, they tried to recreate Kolchak without the sense of humor. Oh, they went straight drama? Yeah, it was pretty much straight drama. And I think, when did, when did Supernatural start coming out? I think it started out in 2005. Yeah. But I was just thinking tone-wise with, like, coming off of the 90s with the whole grittiness thing that was going through a lot of pop culture at the time, I think that kind of contributed to it. It's almost like, you know, just leading too much into late 90s, early 2000s grittiness. Supernatural premiered two weeks before Kolchak, or two weeks before The Night Stalker. Yeah, that might have done it, too. (laughs) I don't know. How well Supernatural was received in its early days because I have only watched like a handful of episodes of. I mean, most people say the first five seasons were the best five seasons, but also that's usually with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. And I know that it got hit with the writer's strike situation too. A lot of people say that that was a good thing for them. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it forced them to... So what ended up being, I think, the third season cliffhanger, which was Dean Goes to Hell, that ended up becoming the season finale. And a lot of people think that in hindsight that really helped, because instead of it being something that was resolved in a few months, it was something that people had to wait for, like, years, and, like, this hype just kept building and building and building, and so there are way more people jumping onto the show for the fourth season, because all they've been hearing for the past, like, year or so is like, oh my gosh, how's how's, uh, Dean gonna get out of hell? And it turned out that Castiel gripped him tight and raised him from perdition, and the rest is history. Yeah. (laughs) Um... (laughs) (laughs) This remake that I took way too long to do, um, basically... Oh boy. (laughs) I actually don't have that that much notes because, like, I was just thinking, like, maybe time the focus because, like, again, one of the problems that in the original run back in the 70s, the the crew found was that they were falling into the Monster of the Week trappings, basically. And, like, that's not a bad formula to use. But, like, if this were to be produced, like, tomorrow, I think, like, there's been so many other Supernatural series that have done Monster of the Week that maybe we should try a different sort of story arc situation or, like, story structure. I I don't know how, mm-hmm. I'm, how I'm wording this, but, like, maybe, like, a tighter focus, maybe instead of having, like, a... Uh, scatter shot, like, let's do Monster of the Week and then build up to these bigger arc situation. Let's just, like, instead of doing, like, 20 episodes, maybe do, like, 10 to 12 episodes. I know, like, a lot of TV shows do that now. And Well, here's here's the thing, is that I feel like because there are so many, like, 13 to 10 episode seasons these days, people have uh, lost or forgotten the fact that, like, a show could have a half arc, which is the yeah. thing like, about half of the episodes were tying into the myth arc of the season and half of them were just monster of the week or character focused. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. Just having Buffy did that really well. Supernatural did that really well. Yeah. So I like even X-Files did that really well. Yeah. Jury's out on how well X-Files did things, but like the point of X-Files was honestly, they had a lot of monsters of the week in the early time because the focus was seeing how Scully and Mulder function together. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Is Col- Does Kolchak get a Scully? Um, not really, because Tony Vincenzo doesn't go out a whole lot. Tony Vincenzo is, like, his editor. Okay. And is mostly there to just yell at him. That must be why they added Gabrielle Union. Yeah. I'm thinking of, like, still keeping a Tony. Maybe not a male Tony, but, like, a Tony. And, yeah, like, as an editor and is the more Scully type. But, like, I was also thinking, because when I watched the first movie Carl Kolchak was actually a little more skeptical about the supernatural stuff until like 
they had pretty good evidence that this is an actual vampire, or at least a guy who thinks he's a vampire. Okay. So maybe let's start studying some vampire lore. And then when the TV show happened, like, they really leaned into Carl being, like, full-on, no, the supernatural exists. But I think it's coming from the place of, like, these two movies are in canon, and these happened before Kolchak and, like, before the Kolchak TV series happens in Chicago. Uh, because they move locations. They started in Las Vegas, they moved to Seattle, and then they go to Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> and Carl keeps talking about going back to New York. <laughs> Um, anyway, like, I think their idea was that at, by the point that we meet Kolchak in Chicago, he's a full believer in the supernatural. So he's going to be a lot more credulous towards the claims of such. Yeah. I'm thinking, okay, so I'm going to gender bed Kolchak, of course, to Carly Kolchak. Okay. Um, but I'm still keeping her relatively like late thirties, early forties. Um, right. and a lesbian. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, of course. Because, I don't know, there's, you know, the usual issues with the representation of older women and, you know, not a lot of jobs for them outside of being mothers, basically. Yeah. Or, like, being cold, hard bitches. <laughs> so, I was thinking with Carly, like, she's, I wrote down, she's a talented reporter down on her luck with a penchant for attracting the supernatural. So I'm thinking like she already kind of, maybe she does have some like supernatural encounters in her past, but like is skeptical enough to be like, okay, there might be logical explanations for why X, Y, Z happened. Yeah. It's just, they well, were I think, I think one way we can differentiate between, instead of it being a classic of Mulder and Scully, it can be that Carly is like, a steadfast investigator, and it's like, she's a believer, but she's not going to jump to conclusions. Yeah, she's not going to take everything at face value, and she... Maybe she's she's a lot more willing to fit her theories to the evidence, instead of fitting the evidence to her theories, like you see a lot of times. Yeah, and then and then if you contrast that with Tony, where it's like, is it like Tony, I, I feel like, would be a very if it bleeds, it leads kind of editor. And mm-hmm. be like, we're going to print with the Chupacabra story, and if you don't have anything new for us, by five. And Carla's like, but there's literally nothing tying it to a Chupacabra. I don't care that people love a Chupacabra. Yeah, because I was thinking, like, okay, so we're in the new media era. We're, of course, setting this in the, in the year of our Lord, 2020-whatever. Newspapers and magazines are not doing great right now. And yeah. I think... If Carly is a down-on-her-luck report, investigative reporter, she's probably working for a quote-unquote news magazine that's really just a tabloid based out of Las Vegas. And the American Southwest is full of weird shit. Yeah. You're living in Las Vegas. Part of the airport is used to flying people who go to Area 51. <laughs> <laughs> like, that is a legit thing that happens. Uh like, back in the day, you could be at your casino, and, like, if you had the right view, you could see the nuclear weapons testing happening over out in the desert. Oh, no, that's not great. Yeah, the government says that there hasn't been any medical problems that was the fallout from that, but the wind? Our legal advisors have told us that any medical issues arising in this area are definitely not because of the nuclear weapons testing. <laughs> Yeah, uh, people have legitimately tried to sue the government by saying, like, hey, you did a lot of weapons testing back in the day, and we have an oddly high cancer rate. Um, Yeah, like, there was uh, a recent legal battle between the Navajo Nation and the U.S. government that got struck down over groundwater rights, or, like, access to water. Yeah. Because, again, all of the weapons testing that has happened in the Southwest most of the groundwater is unusable uh, because it's pretty fucking irradiated. And apparently part of the treaty that the Navajo Nation signed was back in the 1860s apparently excluded access to water, which I call bullshit. Yeah. Anyway. uh, (laughs) it, It goes without saying that any government dealing with indigenous populations is trying to wipe out the indigenous populations so that they don't have to deal with them anymore. Yeah. They just don't say the quiet part out loud. Mm-hmm. 
So, I have stuff planned out for, like, five seasons with an overall arc. With the first season starting off with the Las Vegas vampire. So we're doing Yana Scorzani vampire, you know, doing vampire stuff around Las Vegas. And then in between... It Can could... we... Hmm? How do you feel about gender-bidding Yanos? Why not? Or maybe it doesn't necessarily need to be Yanos, but I'm just like, okay. You know Lily James, right? Yes. Picture Lily James in your mind. Yes. <laughs> now picture her just fucking covered in blood. <laughs> I like it. So, like, she doesn't have to be the vampire, but she should definitely be a vampire. Yeah. My overall idea is that, like, the first season would be about Yanos, and then the last season, based off of an unproduced, um, oh, no, it was a produced, um, TV script, but one of the episodes was the crew going back to Las Vegas because... A forgotten victim of Janos Korzeny was discovered, and she revives as a vampire. Uh-oh. Yeah, it's called The Vampire. So I was thinking, like, just have it come full circle for the final season. Yeah, I really like that. I love a full circle. Mm-hmm. So with the adaptation of the movie, like, we could stretch it out to, like, 22 episodes with, like, stuff in between where it's just, like, Carly is working for this tablet and has to go to, like... I don't know, a flat earth or convention or some sort of weird new age <laughs> stuff. Uh, <laughs> an episode where, like, there's a guy at a casino, maybe he's a whale, and for whatever reason is on a bit of a wedding streak. And it's like, huh, what's going on? Is this regular cheating or is this something else going on? You know, the alien stuff and all that, because again, this is the American Southwest and we are not that far. Las Vegas is not that far from a whole bunch of military sites. Yeah. And it's like, okay, for the most part, probably most of these alien sightings that are like this, these UAP sightings, that's the new terminology, unidentified aerial phenomena, it's probably just US military drones or experimental stuff. Oh my god, the vampires have drones now. You know what? That could be a way to hunt for hunt for victims. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, there could be stuff where it's like, well, this could be a drone, but like this technology is oddly advanced. Where where did you get this? And it's like, we can't tell you. <laughs> it's ancient vampire technology from Atlantis. <laughs> or, you know, the whole Dulce Bay stuff, whatever. Yeah. Mostly, yeah. Like the biggest problem that Carly is facing when it comes to investigating this vampire is for whatever reason, the... Authorities in Las Vegas are adamant to cover this up, and this is a this is a thing that happens to Kolchak in the original series a lot. He has these stories, he tries to print them, and everybody is like, "No, you can't print this because X, Y, Z reasons. It's it's ridiculous. It will cause a panic. Um, people tend to confiscate his camera constantly, destroying evidence, all that sort of stuff." So. <laughs> I'm thinking with Vegas because it is a massive tourist spot. Like, there is a lot of money coming into this place, and you don't want the normies panicking. Like, of course they're going to be like, there's no serial killer here. Of course there's nobody drinking people's blood. Yeah, but also with Vegas, it would be a great, a great place for Kolchak to working for a tabloid. Yeah, because a lot of very wealthy, uh, very famous people come here. Also a lot of not so famous, but very wealthy, very weird people come to Las Vegas. <laughs> so I was thinking the first season will largely follow the main plot beats of the original 72 movie with like episodes in between for character stuff and like fun breather episodes. Um, at this time, Carly will be dating a casino worker by the name of Abby Foster. Okay. And like her... 72 counterpart gail foster she fucks out of town at the end of the season uh she's basically told to leave oh no yeah it's a lot of oh you're like attached to carly plus this weird stuff happened um you're now an undesirable please get out of town oh no yeah so we're not gonna see carly for a bit or uh abby for a bit um season two the night strangler i was thinking of like with the second movie, heading up north, 
Okay, so my thought was like a small-ish city in Northern California, but Seattle could work, but I almost, like, the plot that I came up with, it works better in a smaller town. Like, sort of ranch country, that situation. Okay. Yeah. So, I was thinking, Carly goes up to this fictional Northern California town because friends of hers have a ranch out in that area. And it's like, I'm just gonna hang out here and wait for stuff to cool down in Vegas before I go back. Or, (laughs) even better, I get a job in somewhere like Sacramento. (laughs) Or Seattle. Because San Francisco is too expensive to live. Um, Yeah. So I was thinking with this town, and this is going from the second movie, The Night Stranger. So every 21 years, a small city in Northern California becomes the center of a mysterious series of murders that date back to its founding in 1855. But, okay, after watching the second movie, where that one is, the murderer in question is, like, an alchemist. I think in the novelization it's hinted that he might be the Countess Saint-Germain, who was a famous alchemist who... He was allegedly born in 1691, or 1712, and definitely died on February 27th, 1784. He was an... A European adventurer who achieved prominence in European high society in the mid-18th century due to his interest and achievements in science, alchemy, philosophy, and the arts. Uh, He claimed to be the son of Prince Francis II Rakochi of Transylvania. He made other far-fetched claims, such as being, like, over 500 years old. Uh, Voltaire dubbed him the Wonder Man and said that he is a man who does not die. And who knows everything. And yeah, kind of went and died his way all over Europe at the time. Okay. He's been adopted into like a lot of occult circles as like being an alchemist who like actually did find like the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> yeah, it, it's weird. Like my general idea was that instead of doing that, I, I don't know, I'm just, I guess I'm overexposed to the, com- to the Comte de Saint-Germain, but maybe we can futz into it whatever i was thinking like there was something freaky with the founding of this city in northern california like when the settlers came there was uh some bad shit went down and now the city is cursed so every 21 years there's like maybe with the founding it's like there wasn't enough water and someone got killed (laughs) and then there was water I don't know, do you prefer the Countess Saint-Germain is trying to stay alive by killing people every 21 years for the blood? Or, no, our ancestors did something really, really bad back in 1855, and we have to look at the consequences of it now. I like the latter, but I feel like we should establish the former as a fake-out. Okay, yeah. Like, that's their cover conspiracy, just in case someone uncovers the real conspiracy. Like, maybe maybe someone got close as close as Kolchak did before, like, 21 years ago. Yeah. And maybe the town council kind of takes advantage of, like, the local New Age guru person, because I'm imagining this town is not that far from Mount Shasta, which is <laughs> a favorite of people who believe in Lemuria, um, who is like, oh, yes, this is totally an alchemical ritual, like something created by the Comte de Saint-Germain. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> But anyway, the other important thing about this season is that this is where Carly Kolchak meets Louise Harper. She's a local exotic dancer with a master's in library sciences. So in the original 73 movie, she was a university student who also moonlit as an exotic dancer to help her get her through college. So I'm like, our version of Louise is probably like a lot of other people out there who like, yeah, they took out student loans, but it wasn't enough to cover for their education, so they did exotic dancing, and maybe their career prospects didn't work out as well as they thought they would, and you know what? You can actually make quite a bit of money from exotic dancing. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. And unlike a lot of detective series, uh, Louise is going to fucking survive, mm-hmm. and is going to become Carly's girlfriend, because it seems like every time they introduce some sort of like person involved in the sex trade, they wind up dead. Ooh, yeah. Also, like, when they get back to Vegas, like, she's got a ready-made job. (laughs) Yeah. The actual breadwinner of the family. You need one of those when you're a supernatural investigator. Yeah. 
So anyway, Louise becomes Carly's, I maybe more of a Watson to Carly Sherlock. I don't know if Carly would be considered the uh, the great detective or whatever, but like that sort of dynamic. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Anyway, I think they're gonna figure out that there's that there is genuinely a town curse, or at least like the guy who's currently doing the murders buys into this curse idea a hundred percent. So he might there might as well be a curse. Yeah. At the end of that, with the mystery solved, they go back to Las Vegas. And then we send Carly out into the desert again. Um, <laughs> so this is season yeah, three Yeah, this now? is season three. This is what I'm calling the Curse of the Lost Mine. Because guess what? There's a lot of mining stuff going on in Nevada. In fact, there's a lot of like lost mines all over the American Southwest, both gold and silver mines. Mm-hmm. And I was reading up on, on this one town in an area. It's in like central Nevada. It's like a mountain range that's part of like a, a protected area. And now I remember what it's called. It's called Austin, Nevada. Now we're going to change the name of the town to Lookout. It was a boom town back in the 1880s. And like a lot of boom towns had dried up once the, I think it was a silver mine dried up. So Austin, Nevada is called a living ghost town because there's still technically like a hundred people living within the old town limits. But it's pretty much like nobody lives here anymore. So the premise here is that Carly and Louise have moved back to Vegas. Carly's still working for the tabloid. Louise takes up work as a dancer. And then Tony sends Carly out to this town called Lookout, where like the county is planning on turning it into like a preserved area, kind of a tourist attraction down in the desert calling it a living ghost town. It's got this rich history of being a boom town. There's also like a long history of people disappearing and a legend of a lost mine. And I'm thinking this is going to be like a more chill season, like the the breather season between two and then four and five are going to be a lot more intense. Okay. So like this is a bit more the Scooby-Doo one where it's like there's this legend of a curse and a, and a lost mine. There's also a lot of people who are kind of invested in, like, this lost mine being real mm-hmm. or finding this lost mine because there's apparently, like, the, a massive payload of silver and people want it, of course. So, yeah, like Scooby-Doo, it's probably not supernatural stuff and it's a lot of people in costumes. <laughs> <laughs> but, of course, this is for grown-ups, so there's actual murder. Anyway, I think that can be stretched to, like, 22 episodes with other stuff going on in between. Yeah. We could probably lean more into the alien stuff, too. I'm not sure how we'd be able to do filler for the second season. Yeah, I I don't know. Or maybe we take it a bit more seriously with, like, investigating, like, the ownership of the mines in the area. And business corruption. And then people using the legends to get access to it. Kind of like the controversy over um, Skinwalker Ranch in Utah. Have you ever heard of Skinwalker Ranch? I've heard of it, but I don't know what's up with it. Okay, so Skinwalker Ranch is allegedly this ranch in, I think it's in Utah, uh, that allegedly there's been a lot of supernatural activity going on, a lot of alien stuff, interdimensional stuff, ghosts, all that weird stuff. And it's called Skinwalker Ranch, or it got dubbed Skinwalker Ranch because it's allegedly a cursed area according to the Paiute people. There might have been some Skinwalker stuff going on back in, like, the 1800s, etc., etc. Anyway, the big controversy about it is that it's changed ownership a bunch of times to people who, like, the mysterious billionaires who have a lot of money in, like, American defense contracts. Oh, yeah. Uh, One of the more famous... Situations that happened was, I think, to the Stars Academy that was run by Tom DeLonge of Blink-182 was also involved in, like, trying to produce a show there or something. Yeah, just a lot of really weird stuff going on. And I think most people discount the supernatural stuff as kind of a cover for, like, experimental defense work going on. Okay. So I think with Curse of the Lost Mine, it could, we could go a similar route with that where it's, like, 
it's not so much the supernatural stuff that's really important. It's like the land ownership stuff and both government and company corruption. Mm -hmm. Like the defense industry and the defense department being very, they're basically one and the same. And it's like, okay, why are people like disappearing? What's going on? Why are people being chased out? Etc. Etc. I think that can be stretched out to 22 episodes. And still be a bit of a breather for what's going to happen in season four. And then, if we, because if we want to stretch, put things between. Because the thing is, so we could either do like a straight investigation and it's like a shorter season of 13 episodes where we're focusing on the plot. Or if we want to put filler in between because the filler is used for the character stuff. Yeah. So it's about, do we want to focus more on the plot or more on the characters? We could have it so that... If it's a small town in season two, and if it's this more isolated ranch in season three, we could have it that Kolchak is commuting and, like, working other cases while focusing on this main case. Yeah. So it's like, I'm waiting for a break, or I'm waiting for someone to get back to me or something to pop up. But while I'm waiting for that, let's look into this thing that I heard about, that maybe it's not even that... Which, mm-hmm. theoretically, will not take as long to resolve as the main case I'm working on. Yeah. And then there's the, always a possibility that we start an episode that seems like it's a filler episode, and then, like, in the last ten minutes, like, oh my gosh, this was actually connected to the main case all along. Yeah. And then, if we want to do more character-focused stuff, like, there's the whole relationship between Carly and Louise, where it's like, okay, Carly, you're away all that often. Let me come with you sometimes on this sort of stuff. And it's like, no, it's dangerous. No, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and we develop Louise a bit more. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I like that. And then, like, we have a lot of solid character stuff to go into, and, like, also, like, uncovering all this, like, government corporation stuff going on, that we can sort of move into season four, which I call the Get a Belial and the Devil's Platform. So this is combining... Can you spell that? Sort of... Huh? Can you spell that? Get a Belial? So, the get of Belial is spelled B-E-L-I-A-L. What is the get of Belial? I'm not just sure what the get actually means. This comes from an episode title. I think this is one of the ones that didn't... Like, they had a script, but they didn't film it. Uh, yeah. The get of Belial, written by Don Mullaly. Uh, Kolchak is assigned to cover a minor strike in the mountains of West Virginia. He uncovers gruesome murders associated with the Backwoods family, and Coljack suspects that they have some sort of inbred monster living with them. So I'm not going to do quite the hillbilly horror stuff. Yeah, let's not do inbred hillbillies. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking more Mormon cult. Oh, I like that. Because, yeah, Mormonism So, no, you know, like a normal Mormon. <laughs> Because Mormonism is, like, one of those religions that is perfect for making cults. When you, like, dig into, like, the actual origins of uh, of Mormonism, like, it's seen, so, going all the way back to Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, um, he was a treasure hunter, which is basically a con man. <laughs> um, but he also seemed to have, like, some sort of connection to the Masons, like, he learned a lot about, like, their m- mythology. And mm-hmm. this was in an era, in an era before, like, that was readily available in Wikipedia. Um, and there's this long, very understudied strain of folk magic in uh, New England that came with a lot of the English settlers that he sort of blended together and he seemed to have some sort of access to like older alchemical Gnostic sort of knowledge. Like the mythology is kind of built in a way that is similar to Gnosticism. Okay. And just like the way Mormonism works, it kind of lends its like structurally with like the different bishops and priest heads and all that sort of stuff. It lends itself to making like these mini cults, like family cults. Basically, when I was writing this premise, I, I went on a rabbit hole about the LeBaron family, and it is fucking intense. So going off of that, um, 
Apparently, a, a definition of get as a noun is an offspring or the total of the offspring, especially of a male animal. For example, the get of a stallion. Okay. Which matches very well with Mormons love having kids so they can make more Mormons. Yeah, yeah. There's a reason why they had the whole polygamy thing and still have a problem with polygamy to this day. Um, anyway, the other part of the title I got from an episode that did get aired called The Devil's Platform. Okay. And that one is about a politician played by Tom Skerritt, who's on a meteoric rise, murders his opponents through a pact with the with a pact with Satan, which gives him the ability to turn into an invulnerable dog. So I don't think I'm gonna do that, but like Mormon cult with interesting government connections, maybe a little actual magic going on, and a politician, rising Republican star, like kind of rising really fast. Like absurdly fast. He went from a middling lawyer in Carson City, which is the actual capital of Nevada, um, to this a state legislative firebrand to a congressional favorite in only a couple of years. Some are even talking about a presidential bid already. It's like, this guy comes from nowhere. Yeah. Turns out, as Carly investigates, because she's got her fucking suspicions about this guy, she starts finding weird stuff about him. People who were like his rivals are turning up dead, or they're having these really weird falls from grace. And she finds a lot of dark money, a breakaway Mormon cult, and again, a lot of bodies. And again, I went on a weird rabbit hole about the LeBaron family, who were like these Mormon fundamentalists who went down to Mexico. And like, they were like one big cult, and then they split over leadership. And one side got more murderous than the other and tried to take the <laughs> less murderous side out. And then that very extreme side got wiped out by one of the cartels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really, really crazy. So I'm thinking you could do like a fairly focused season, like even if it is 22 episodes about the rise and fall of this guy and about like their attempts to try and get rid of Carly. And like this is where we can lead into season five, the final season, The Vampire Returns. So my premise here is that while doing road work outside of Vegas, an overlooked victim of Scorzani is uncovered. She revives, starts looking to avenge herself on her progenitor and the world in general, and then people start turning up dead. But the problem Carly is finding is that said victims tend to be people who normally get away with horrible things, Going back to season four, this will include people that Carly wasn't able to, like, take down in the expose about Robert Palmer. Hmm. But also Abby's back. Yay! And it's just like, there's Abby, Louise, and Carly. And Tony. Carly is back. Yeah. You know what? Maybe Carly has managed to get, like, a career in something where she would be, she would have a reason to be back in Vegas. And it might be attached to this. Maybe she was working in a casino to get, like, a medical, like, to help pay for medical school. Okay. And now she's, like, one of the medical examiners in town. Oh, I like that. Yeah. No, they can't really force her out because, like, she's part of the establishment, kind of. Yeah, they can't really force her out. But at the same time, there's this interesting dynamic with, like, her and Carly because, like, Carly's like, why did you leave? Also, why did you ghost me? Because I haven't heard from you in fucking years. And it's like, Abby was maybe very legitimately intimidated. Or like, there's maybe some actual connection to Scorzani that she never brought up. Or this victim in particular. No, she has a connection to the victim. To the revived victim. I should name oh, this yeah. revived victim. Yeah. Another thing I was thinking is that... Okay, so I know I just said that they can't force her out as easily if she's a medical examiner, but it could easily be, like, some big wig at a casino is worried that her being involved in the, like, law enforcement establishment could dig dirt up on him that he doesn't want, so he targets her, but yeah. then he ends up dead at the hands of the new vampire, and that's how Carly comes back in contact with her. Yeah, yeah. 
So the other thing, the other thing about those Monster of the Week seasons is that quite often when you know it's the final season, the Monsters of the Week are not nearly as weekly because everything starts tying back together into the larger plot. Yeah. Like to bring Buffy back into it, I think they only had one episode that was completely unrelated to all the goings on. Everything else, it all came together and moved together and tied back into the overarching narrative of the final season because they knew it was the final season. Yeah. The f- so, so what if at the beginning, it seems like kind of a legion of doom has formed of all of Carly's past enemies. Yeah. Um, But they keep, like, all their attempts to get at her keep dropping, and they keep dropping like flies. And then halfway through, we finally meet the vampirists, and she's like, oh, I'm doing all of this for you. I'm your biggest supporter. I'm taking out the people that you couldn't. Doing a whole, to spoil the, the recent Batman movie, the Batman plot. <laughs> yes, it's the Riddler, except she's a sexy lady vampire. <laughs> Yes! <laughs> and then Carly has to contend with, okay, but... So is this bad? <laughs> yeah, like, I admire the effort, but I think you're missing, like, my points. Yeah. Her her point would have to be that if you are just killing people, like, unfortunately the way the business works is that if you're just killing people at the top, all of their toadies will basically scramble to take position and then continue all the terrible things that they're doing. Yeah. Like, if if you kill a corrupt co- police commissioner, that just means that the, a new pol- corrupt police commissioner gets to take his place. Um, and unfortunately, that does lead her to slaughter an entire police department. <laughs> yeah, totally unfortunately taking out an entire precinct of the, of, of the Las Vegas PD. The infamously corrupt Las Vegas PD. And we're not going to weep over the fact that they're cops, but we are going to be concerned about the fact that it, it, she has gone from, I am, I am the, the Dark Avenger of the night, I am the new Night Stalker, to this new vampirist going, basically, all I have is a hammer, and the hammer is my teeth. Yeah. Because then Carly goes, okay, so she's, she has decided that she gets to be a judge, jury, and executioner. What happens if she decides that a company is doing something bad, and she slaughters everyone at the company? What happens if she decides that a political office isn't protecting the citizens enough, and so she takes out the entire office? She's solving all of her problems with murder. And, you know, we weren't going to weep for all of her victims before, but I'm we need to stop her before she decides to take out someone that doesn't meet her standards. Yeah, it's the whole problem of, um, where do you stop? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that again that that's that's the something that I feel like so a lot of shows they like to go oh if you kill him you'll be just like him and that's like the moral quandary but ignoring the fact that sometimes in those shows especially cuz there are shows killing the person is usually the right idea. Yeah. Um but I think if you want to make it a moral quandary you have to you you don't say that like oh if you kill once you're forever tainted but you do have to say like when you get used to killing it's hard to see a solution that's easier than doing that. Yeah. Once that's on the table, it's hard to take it back off the table. Yeah, it's it, it's more about desensitization, I think. Yeah, and I imagine it's very easy to become desensitized if you're a vampire. Because, like, we're talking about food here, too. Because if we go with vampire classic, like, drinking people's blood is, like, how, how this vampire survives. Yeah, um, but here's one last thing I need to say, because you've been talking a lot about the serious issues that we need to address on the show. Yes. I regret to inform you that the 2005 remake was cancelled because they forgot to make it funny. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> and Coljack, in the original series, had a fucking sense of humor. Yeah. So we need we need an actress who can snark with the best of them. Yes. We need all, all four of our leads across the show are, hang on, who we got? We got Abby, Carly, Tony, and who was the second love interest? Louise. And they, they all have to be women who can be funny. Yes. Carly and Tony, I'm thinking, should be more middle-aged. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at uh, the famous people actresses in their 30s. Definitely plus 40 for Tony. Yeah. Um, mid to late 30s, early 40s for Carly. Ooh, what if Tony was Kristen Bell? Ooh. Yeah, I like that. I can see you're being, like, a boss lady editor who is like, I don't fucking care how you get the story. And then Carly can be Michelle Rodriguez. Oh, Yeah. Because she can absolutely snark with the best of them. Yep. Plus have fighting skills, because she's been mm-hmm. in all of those Fast and the Furious movies. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Oh, right, Brandy's in her 40s. Do you think we could land Brandy? Maybe. Or would you want the love interest to be a little younger? 
Okay, so how old is Brandy? Brandy is... She's 44. So I was thinking with Louise, like, she does have a master's in library sciences, so... I think at the lower end, she would probably be in her late 20s. But to avoid age discourse, maybe bump her up to, like, mid-30s? Yeah. Yeah, I think just the way you've described both the love interests, I feel like it would make sense for them to be a little younger. Yeah, because in the original movies, there were significant age differences. I know it's the 70s, but it's like, hmm. Okay, let's, can I cast Brenda Song as Abby? Just because I like when she's in stuff. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And then Louise will be Zoe Kravitz. Yeah, I can see her on a stripper pole. (laughs) (laughs) We say that with love. (laughs) Again, we are sex worker positive here. And sex worker does include exotic dancing. Yes. And there is an art to it, too. Like, there's actual, like, conventions and awards for burlesque and striptease. Yeah, they, listen, they may have been invented by men, but they were pioneered by women. Yeah, and these arts go back a long time, too. I remember watching a documentary about burlesque. They were talking to this one woman who um, was a seamstress for uh, a lot of burlesque dancers, who... Yeah, she was married to, like, a cop, but she's like, you know what? The the local bylaws say you have to wear pasties. I will sew your fucking pasties for you, and they will be good. We actually like you girls. Nice. But yeah, I like that round out cast. I guess the comedy part comes from a saying, it'll be funny, trust us. <laughs> <laughs> These actresses have comedy abil- have comedic abilities. And I, I imagine this will be more of a dry humor than... yeah. Original Kolchak was pretty dry humor, too. I Okay, well then, in that case, that fits perfectly. <laughs> Here's how you tell the difference between, like, a funny, like, sitcom show in the 70s and a series with humor in it, is that the sitcom had a laugh track. Yeah, that's true. We're probably not gonna go for laugh track. No. We just need... <laughs> We just need the characters to be able to deliver, like, funny lines or have funny reactions or, you know, be able to lift up the mood. Yeah. Also, since we have a primary cast of four queer women, we can absolutely just have a fun brunch moment. Yes. (laughs) And Vegas is, like, the perfect place for brunch scenes. There's restaurants everywhere. Yeah, that's true. That can be the weekly thing. It's like, the weekly thing is ladies' brunch. Yes! (laughs) Yes! <laughs> you know, even when they're in the mining town. <laughs> they somehow, like, make time to break out the 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 mimosas. <laughs> no, they find, they find the one sassy gay friend in the mining town. <laughs> <laughs> Who has access to avocados. Exactly. And then for the final season, he comes back to Vegas with them. Yes! He's interning at the paper. Well, there was a character who was quoted gay, who was, a uh, coded gay. God, why, why did I say coded weird? <laughs> he was weird coded. <laughs> he was implied to be kind of strange. Yeah. I can't say it was the best because this is the mid-1970s. Uh, he was called Ra- Ron Updike. He appeared for 18 episodes. <laughs> that is a perfect drag king name, though. <laughs> Colchak's um, superfluous rival at INS, whom Kolchak repeatedly refers to as Uptight, a San Francisco native. Updike is the opposite of Kolchak, always smartly dressed and hobnobbing with Chicago's elite. Truly love that he is repeatedly trying to make him <laughs> make Kolchak call him Updike. You would not be shouting that in the middle of the street these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> U P D Y K E. Ron does not say his name out loud to anybody. He is just Ron, Ron on Grinder. What it is, Ron runs the proper paper. Yes. I think we need to keep Ron as Kolchak's rival. <laughs> and I think also at some point, Carly does have to say, you know, Ron, your name would be a great drag king name. Yes. 
And then when we come back to Vegas in season three, they go to the gay club and they're like, they're having the drag, they're having drag king Wednesdays. <laughs> it's like, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage, Ron Updike. <laughs> and it is a, it's, it's a full drag king who does look just like him. And for whatever reason, Ron has joined them at the club and he's like, oh my God, she stole my whole deal. <laughs> Okay, what sort of gay is Ron Updike? Ron is he's very old fa he's a very old fashioned gay. He's he truly is still uptight. He's, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately he will spend the first four seasons being a respectable gay. Oh god, yeah. Like why what man, why do they gotta rub it in our faces? Ron, you're gay. Ron is here as homophobic homosexual representation. He will be saying no kink at Pride. And then the sassy gay friend shows up in the last season, and Ron is freed from the chains of heteronormativity. Yes, finally. The first time he shows up at, at the Las Vegas Pride Parade and something a little more risque, the rest of the cast is like, thank fucking god. Apparently there's a wacky incompetent intern named Monique Marmelstein. She can be yeah. the sassy- we can, we can gender bend her, and he can be the sassy gay that they rescue from. Not rescue, because there's plenty of sassy gays in the mining town. Yeah. But he just, like, he's coming to Vegas to do the internship and learn the ropes before he carries all that knowledge back to his mining town. Yeah. And he's going to take Ron with him at the end. Yes. And then there's Emily Cowles, who's the el elderly puzzles and advice columnist. I, I kind of like the idea of having a nice little old lady. Whether or not she's queer, I, I don't know. But, like, she, like, runs the office. We... Much like we we did back in Dukes of Hazard, she's the trans elder of the office. Yes, she has seen it all. And she's, I feel like, I kind of want to make her a dirty old lady. <laughs> Actually, there was an episode where uh, she goes on a date with a guy and she gets some pills for the guy and it's like, oh, Miss Emily. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm thinking, like, she used to work with Ron at Puzzles and Advice at his paper, but she got kicked out because she kept on making the, the crosswords too risque. Yes! And kept, <laughs> and kept on, like, tell, telling, like, for all the advice columns, she kept on suggesting, like, various sex toys. And the issue there wasn't the sex toys, necessarily. It was that she kept on promoting stores that were not paying to be promoted in the paper. Yes! <laughs> yes, I love that. She does the horoscopes for, for the tabloid. <laughs> like, you gotta have one astrology gay. We, yeah, and we have to have, like, a horoscope episode where... Yes. I don't know, it's like... I know, one of the seasons where it's, like, alchemy is the issue, like, they have to call her... Oh, yeah, because you said, like, it was a weird alchemist situation in uh, the second season town, right? Or no, we said that's that was the cover story. Yeah, that was the red herring. And so, oh, maybe that's what it starts off. That's what we can do. It starts off as a gag episode where they're trying to delve into astrology woo-woo stuff and they're calling her. And like at the end, they're like, this doesn't add up. And that's how they figure out that this, if the conspiracy they uncovered is a smokescreen conspiracy. And the real yes. conspiracy is that it's a town with a different dark secret. And yes. everyone knows. I like that. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> uh, Yeah, so I think with that... We got five seasons of Coljack, and, you know, it could probably last five seasons because people would actually like the humor. Yeah. Honestly, it could probably last more than five seasons. We just need them to tell us ahead of time yeah. so that we can, like, insert a, a season in the middle. Because if we tell the story of the last season, like, that's the grand finale. If they say, can we have one yeah. more season? We're going to say, no, we finish it. They need to tell us that we're going to have an extra season before we start production on the fifth season so that the fifth season can become the sixth season. Yeah. The more seasons we get, the more the final season just gets kicked down the road. The more lesbians we gather. <laughs> yes. Lesbians, gays, bi's, all, all of the letters in the acronym. Yes. Diana Agron will show up at some point. Yes. Oh, maybe she's a singer who has, like, a residence at one of the casinos. Oh, that would work. Yeah. Or no, I feel... Mm, I want her to be... I want her to be involved in the second season town. Okay. I feel like she, I feel like Diana Agron would slay as a cult leader. Yeah. Because, again, Northern California, the, they're... I scoped at the area that I'm basing this town off of. It's not that far from Mount Shasta. Again, that is like woo-woo central. Is that what they named the cola after? I think so. 
Anyway. <laughs> anyway. We have a good Kolchak series. We do have a good Kolchak series. Yes. <laughs> we can't sell it to anyone right now on account of the writer's strike, but rest assured. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> Alright, but for now, I think we're going to go investigate a friendship promo. The year is 2225, and the end of the universe is nigh. Welcome to the Junket Podcast. The Junket Podcast is an actual play and really gay TTRPG adventure currently running the Maelstrom campaign, a science fiction take on Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition featuring spaceships, space aliens, and a whole bunch of space gays. Follow a found family of misfits and miscreants on a cosmic caper that features science and magic, love, loss, and a whole lot of laughter. Who knows, maybe they'll even save the universe or something along the way. Did that tickle your fancy? If it did, new episodes launch every other Thursday at 5pm GMT on all major and minor podcasting platforms. See you soon in the Maelstrom Galaxy. So I don't actually know what friendship promo I put in here at time of recording. I was going to make a joke where like, oh, well, it turns out the friendship promo was just crystals, but I feel like that would be mean. Yeah. <laughs> the Not If I Reboot You Reboot... What, what's our show called? The Not If I Reboot You First guarantee is that we will not advertise crystals. Yeah. Sorry, we walk into a New Age store and we just like de-energize everything. <laughs> <laughs> Did I break your mom's crystals? Like, not physically, but like energize... <laughs> I mean, I haven't heard her talk about crystals in a long time, so... Oh, good, I cured her. <laughs> okay, Lindsay, uh, if, if, where can, where can you be night-stalked on the internet? Is that something that I can say? <laughs> if you mean, like, where a, a sapphic vampire can find me? Yeah, um... yeah if, if, if Lindsay is looking for sapphic vampires in her area, let them know where we can find you. <laughs> Look, I say that because I watched the web series of Carmilla that one time, and everybody on it was pretty. Gosh, should we do Carmilla? Should Carmilla show up? But it's like, not not to borrow too much from Buffy, but they did have a Dracula show up in this fifth season premiere, and he was just there for a single episode, and the rest of the season was about something. He never showed up again. Should we do that with Carmilla? She just shows up. <laughs> I mean, there's so many lesbians and bisexual women already in this series, why the fuck not? She shows up for one episode. We don't even know she's the Carmilla until the end. Yes. <laughs> anyway, if Carmilla wants to find me, I can be found on Twitter at lindsaym476. That's Lindsay spelled with an A, and you can get to all my other social media bullshits from there. Tanner, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at SparkyUpstart and on Instagram at SparkyYoungUpstart. You can also find this very podcast on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Those are the letters for Not If I Boot You First, and they're pronounced that's a vampire noise, probably. <laughs> I will say that the only words that Janos Corsini said in that first movie were just vampire noises. <laughs> vampire noises. Blah, blah, blah. It was just a whole lot of... Ah! Ah! <laughs> <laughs> um, you can also email us at notifiverbootyourfirst at gmail.com or you, you can send us your comments, critiques, criticisms, and your favorite crystals. <laughs> <laughs> we'll turn them into normal rocks for you. Uh, that is also where you can send us a friendship promo via an audio clip or a proof for us to read. Either way, we'll put in a free ad for your podcast or YouTube or even your DeviantArt. Not if I reboot you first as a member of the Corner Podcast Network, and you can talk more about this show or others on the network via our Corner Podcast Discord. As always, our cover art is by Alex Fierce, and her work can be found on ptchew.com, and our theme music is done by Sean Clake, whose contact info is available upon request. This podcast is recorded on Treaty Port Territory, the traditional lands of the Cree, Sultul, and Assiniboine, and homeland of the Métis. So, Tanner. So, Lindsay. Do you have a hint for us next next week? You know what? I think, since it's never going to happen in real life, tragically, at least not for a long time now, but I think to tie in to the other big movie coming out, we need to continue the fab fantabulous emancipation. Oh, oh, all right then. Exactly. Yeah. So, we're going to be glitter bombing that next week. But not if we reboot you first. 
拜拜。